This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Thank you very much for joining me today, and I'm very excited to share this book with you. So today's conversation is about Projeet Mukherjee's new book, Doctoring Traditions, Ayurveda, Small Technologies, and Braided Science. This came out in 2016 with the University of Chicago Press. And what the book does is use a series of case studies um, that in each case look very carefully at the way that the use and engagement with what Project calls a small technology, a non-spectacular technology, an everyday technology like the pocket watch, the thermometer, the microscope, produced new ways of materializing body metaphors or produced physiograms in the way that we'll talk about um, in the moments to come and collectively resulted in a modernizing of practices and concepts of Ayurveda. And this is particularly in the context of British Bengal in the late 19th to early 20th century. So this is going to be, as you can hear, absolutely required reading um, for anyone working on medicine, health, its practices and histories in Asia. But it's also really closely and carefully engaged with a number of methodological and historiographical threads and concepts um, that rooted in science studies much more broadly conceived. So as you'll hear um, in the conversation to come, Projeet is very, very careful um, and sort of very clear about the fact that this is also not just a book about the history of medicine, but it's also very much a book about the history of science and the engagement between science and medicine. It's doing all kinds of interesting work um, that you'll hear about in the hour to come. It's an extensive interview, so I think I'll leave it at that and uh, let you get right to it. But just uh, thank you very much for listening, for your support of the channel, um, and I hope you enjoy. And I really do hope that you have a chance to get your hands on a copy of the book. There's so much in here um, that we could only um, very barely touch on in the course of this uh, conversation and in this medium. And there's so much in there to reward the reader. So get your hands on a copy of the book if you can um, and enjoy the conversation. And thank you for listening. I'm here today to talk with Projeet Mukherjee about his new book, Doctoring Traditions. Welcome to the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast, Proji. Thank you, first of all, um, for writing a really exceptional book that I'm super excited to talk with you about, and also for making time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Welcome to the channel. Thanks, Carla. Thanks for having me here, and um, and it, I'm looking forward to this because um, I've learned a lot from uh, uh, many of our chats over the years, and so... <laughs> I'm sure this is, and I'm sure those things have found their way at some level into the book. <laughs> so, so looking forward to this, really. Well, Thank you. Well, that's kind of you, and I'm really looking forward to it, too. So let's actually start for listeners who haven't had the benefit of knowing you for years, as we've been having these conversations for years. Um, let's talk about how you came to the field. What brought you, first of all, to the history of science and medicine as a field, and why Ayurveda specifically? Well, it's actually uh, like I think most of these stories kind of serendipitous. Uh, a friend of mine who was a few years my senior at, uh, as an undergrad, he uh, got the Rhodes Scholarship from uh, India to go to Oxford. And he wasn't sure if he would be able to come back for fieldwork. And so he asked me to help him photocopy 
uh, a lot of his primary sources, which were all old newspapers. Uh, and I was a, a senior undergrad then in Calcutta. And it's the first time I saw old newspapers. Uh, and, and I was struck by the ads on the front page uh, because... Uh, I mean, this is true, for, I've later realized for most newspapers, but I had no clue that there were firstly, uh, like tabloids, 19th century newspapers had like almost their entire first page devoted to ads. And moreover, I didn't have uh, any idea that like about two thirds of those were ads devoted to medicine and particularly sexual <laughs> medicine. And I was like, that turned my head about what I thought uh, my great grandfather's generation were about. I didn't think, think of them as of kind of Viagra popping ultra virality. <laughs> so, so that got me into it. Uh, uh, into these, I wanted to initially write a history of uh, advertisements in India uh, in the nineteenth century, but then I realized the kind of uh, there was very little background information other than the ads themselves, and I wasn't very keen on doing a kind of art history project, looking at the images alone. So then I kind of zeroed in on most of these ads were about medicine. So, okay, let, let's go with medicine. So that's what got me into history of medicine initially and then eventually science. So the 19th century focus then, it sounds like, was kind of di dictated, <clears throat> excuse me, by the nature of the sources that you were interested in. Is that is that right? Absolutely. Uh, but I also find it an incredibly, because um, of the range of sources one can still access and the kind of uh, diverse, because I think in, in Calcutta particularly, uh, which was kind of, for those who don't know, perhaps uh, was uh, a much more important city than it now is uh, in South Asia. It was the capital of the British Empire till 1911. Um, and so there were uh, the sheer variety of voices in it and the variety of conversations is really mind-boggling. I mean, it's uh, and there's a very, very plural uh, print culture, um, which is unfortunately very ill-preserved today. But uh, by plural, I don't just mean different uh, types of elites speaking, speaking amongst themselves, but a print culture that went very deep, that there were presses all over the place, very cheap presses, uh, which gave voice to many different layers of society that then you can probably access uh, for other times and other places in South Asia. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, so you've said a little bit about what brought you to Ayurveda in this uh, particular period um, and also some of the sources, right, um, that we can see coming up a little bit in the book. How did you come to focus on this particular way into the topic. And by that, um, what I mean is not just a focus um, geographically and temporally, right? So the book focuses on British Bengal between about 1870, which is a period um, where you locate a rise of a print culture you've talked about, and 1930, but also um, kind of the, the emergence or the making of a modern Ayurveda. And I say that in quotes, and I say that as a concept um, that you uh, bring a lot of real thoughtfulness, right, and like nuance to rather than taking it for granted. Why this particular approach and why a monograph that looks at this particular transformation? <laughs> well, you know, I had actually wanted to write a very different book uh, initially about this topic. And I've been like struggling to write this. This was uh, going to be my uh, PhD topic. It was going to be my first book. It ended up being neither. It ended up being my second book. So uh, not because I gave up working on it, but just because I just couldn't find the right uh, structure in which to put uh, everything that I was trying to say in. Um, and there was a very different book, which I actually almost completely wrote out and then decided against it. And that would have been a book that went from the 14th century, roughly to the 19th century. Oh, wow. uh, uh, and that book was more about trying to also disaggregate um, Ayurveda as a kind of uh, pan-Indic or, um, or pan-South Asian um, uh, configuration of knowledge and what was happening in Bengal 
and how those two are neither completely distinct from each other, but nor can they be collapsed. Because one thing that's happened in the histories of Ayurveda uh, for the pre-modern period is, I think, they're placeless in a sense. They're they're all over South Asia. You get people talking about manuscripts found in Xinjiang, but they would be talking as if it was equally valid for all of South Asia. So... Uh, so I wanted to uh, complicate that a bit, but that was getting into more of kind of very complex uh, dynamics about society and caste. Uh, and it was taking me away from uh, a focus on uh, the actual knowledge and practices that uh, that I also want to focus on, because I think there's a very rich historiography now, uh, such as Kavita Shivaramakrishnan's work, Rachel Burge's work, uh, <clears throat> which has told us a lot about the modernization of Ayurveda. But what I find is that their stories are all kind of institutional stories. They're telling us about how institutions changed and they don't get into the actual uh, content of medical knowledge and practice. And that's also something I wanted to do. And I thought if I went down that 14th to 19th century route, it would be a very interesting story, but it would be the backstory to these institutional stories, rather than getting into the knowledge and practice, which is, so I eventually decided that that's what I was going to do. I was going to go go focus more on this later period, but delve into when we speak of modern Ayurveda, what is it actually that is modern about it? Not just the uh, infrastructures that are changing, but what changes in terms of knowledge and practice within it. Great. And that focus on knowledge and practice also brings up, um, or your, your invocation of that allows me to bring up something um, that comes up in the introduction that's, I think, really important throughout the book. Um, and this is um, kind of your the way that you are weaving and braiding together, perhaps, and we'll talk about braiding mm-hmm. as a figure soon, uh, mm-hmm. different strands of historiography to make your story in a way that makes this book really, really useful, not just for people who are interested in the particular um, sort of sub-discipline that you're working in, right? South Asia, history of medicine, um, the interaction between medicine and science, but also much more broadly, this is a book that contributes to a number of different historiographical kind of questions and threads and themes. And that's one of the reasons I think it's so important. Um, and one of the kind of major uh, historiographical threads that comes up, speaking of what you were just talking about, is Charles Rosenberg's idea of therapeutic change. Right. Right. Um, so this comes up over and over again. And on, I'll um, perhaps ask you about that a little bit later, but I just want to mark mm-hmm. over the course of our conversation um, some of these ideas that come up that seem really important to the work that's happening in the book um, and that mm-hmm. you're very generous, right, about acknowledging and bring, bringing into your story by name, which not everybody does. And so I think that's something that's also really <laughs> impressive. Okay, so before we get to therapeutic change and before we get to some of these, let's get to um, medicine bottles, right? Right in the <laughs> <laughs> so let's get in. So now, listeners, we're going to get right into the book. Right on the first page of the introduction, you talk about this kind of object that we're going to see again in the course of the narrative of the book. And this is an object that in many ways kind of frames the whole story. We see it at the beginning and we see it at the end. And this is medicine bottle. So, Projit, you talk here about your hobby of collecting old medicine bottles. Um, can you maybe start uh, bringing us into the story by talking a little bit about that? Like, why, first of all? Um, and, and how does this hobby kind of like interfinger with the work that the book is doing? Uh, well, the medicine bottles, uh, the hobby is kind of, um, I, I wish I could show you. I have like... Uh, I think over 300 bottles now in my collection. Wow. Uh, and, yeah. And, uh, for somebody who has, uh, in the course of my his professional career, had to move over three continents, moving these bottles is w- one of our biggest logistic challenges when we move. I anyway. can imagine. <laughs> so, uh, and they're dearer to me than a lot of really much more expensive things <laughs> and uh, and so uh, i i it like old glass fascinates me you know when when i was growing up in calcutta uh, this was a, a 
world with a lot less color than we have today and uh, uh, because this was uh, this was still a cold war childhood uh, we were broadly in the soviet bloc so to speak by the time i was born at least and um, and uh, there weren't like uh, tv used to be quite bland and uh, black and white uh, the, there wasn't any Coca-Cola or Hollywood movies. Uh, daily life had a lot less color. And the one thing that did have color were these um, um, sort of uh, itinerant uh, men who would buy up old bottles. They would come with big sacks on their backs and ask for old bottles. And then they would, and you would bring out whatever bottles you have or your mother would usually, and they would weigh them and give you some money and take away the bottles. And I found his sacks incredibly exciting because they had all these, brilliantly colored old glass bottles so that's that's kind of i think the root of my fascination with these bottles uh but like i said like they've grown and i've i've continued to carry them around like a snail on my back um and so uh the way it intersects with uh the story like i say in the book is it uh i found this bottle which uh, was kind of almost like a holy grail to me in of all places uh in a um, farmer's market in Philadelphia right after I moved to Philadelphia and uh, I asked the guy where he found the bottle uh, and he said he had dug it up uh, from an old Victorian uh, rubbish dump in Pittsburgh um, and this is something that there is a small market in uh, old bottles now and people look up where old rubbish tips were and go and dig up uh, and then sell them. And so it was fascinating to me that this little bottle, uh, which had once contained an Ayurvedic medicated hair oil uh, with three Indian scripts embossed on the side of the bottle, had traveled all the way from uh, South Asia to Pittsburgh in the 1890s. And uh, it just got me thinking as to what were the kind of frameworks within which this object could move and what were the kind of frameworks within which the producer and the consumer imagined each other uh, in the 1890s uh, in Pittsburgh and Calcutta, respectively. Fabulous. And it's, I'll just mention very briefly um, for listeners who are particularly interested in this that you're mentioning color and the importance of color just now also um, evokes something that happens later in the book. So for listeners who are particularly interested in that, there's a whole chapter um, that looks at the importance of light um, and that touches on as well the importance of color um, for some of this story. So we'll get to that um, in a little bit. Now, the core of the book is structured around five case studies. These are case studies that occupy chapters two through six that describe the incorporation of a particular technology into Ayurvedic practice, resulting in what you call a braiding together of strands of sciences and the production of a new body image. Um, so there are at least a couple of elements of that description that I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about because they're absolutely central to the work that the book is doing. Now, the first is this idea of braiding. Um, mm -hmm. So you integrate this and you really kind of use um, and talk about this idea of braiding sciences throughout the book. This is one of the core ideas and contributions mm -hmm. methodologically um, to, I think, a number of fields. So, Projit, um, can you talk a little bit about that? What does What is braiding sciences for you and what does it do um, that other kind of historiographical notions um, fall short of or don't let you do in the same way? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really invested in the, this idea of braiding sciences. So thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about it. Uh, it's uh, basically what I want to do, again, is like coming out of my own training, which is most of which was in South Asia. I did, I uh, was born and raised there. I did most of my education there. And I only went to England to do my PhD. So everything till before that, I learned in South Asia. And my uh Training was in uh, universities and by professors who were mostly uh, of a very kind of critical left position, and so uh, the and this was a moment of great change in the 1990s in India when our political spectrum was beginning to lurch uncomfortably to the right, which it, unfortunately it has continued to do since, um, and our. One of the main challenges for us was how to be, uh, how to write histories that were anti-colonial, 
and a non-nationalist and kind of disputed any kind of essentialist idea of the nation um, or or to use Prasenjit Dwara's uh, term, how to save history from the nation. This was a very immediate everyday challenge that I, I do, can go into, but I'll avoid now going into the various kind of everyday ways in which history was being forced to take a stand against xenophobic essentialist nationalism in South Asia in the, 18, uh, in the uh, 1990s. Uh, and so... Uh, I was always very dissatisfied with these moves for global versus local, uh, you know, uh, or even even I think in its latest iteration, this uh, which I find very promising, this go-betweens literature or the uh, or the circulation literature, I find it very productive. But what I always am uh, disappointed by is that it becomes a transaction between savant elites on both sides, and there's a way in which uh, willy-nilly, uh, whether consciously or not, a kind of binary is reproduced um, in which uh, there's a kind of, uh, there's the West and then there's uh, India, China, whatever is the place you're talking about, that gets homogenized in a way as well. And so what I wanted to do with braiding was I was trying to find a uh, a frame that would tell me uh, that would allow me to tell a story that brought out the plurality on both sides so not just the plurality on the uh, non western side but also the plurality on the western side and uh, and i thought and particularly also bring in the subalterns my training has been within the subaltern studies uh, tradition my supervisor was one of the founders of the subaltern studies uh, project so so i also wanted to bring in the subaltern so if you have these three groups then you have like in a sense the european elites with all their plurality uh, you have the colonized elite with all its plurality and you have the subaltern with all their plurality and how does one tell a story that does not reduce any one of these sides to a kind of homogenous blob uh, and I thought the way to do it is if we th- see all of these traditions as being internally diverse and heterogeneous and comprised of multiple strands, and then we see individual people and objects as bringing specific strands together and braiding them together. Braiding is also a, a metaphor I like because it avoids the kind of hybridity talk, which I find very race-inflected. Um and also because hybridity kind of assumes then two pure ancestors, and I'm kind of resistant to purity in essence in every way. And so I'm, I want to think of like uh, braids are things which look beautiful. They could be uh, you could make patterns out of them, but they they could also be unraveled at a later date. So they they do not necessarily com- constitute yet another essence. Um, so yeah, that's that's generally I think I think my thinking on braiding it it's something that brings out the plurality and it's something that avoids essences, something that avoids uh, that tries to be anti-colonial while also not falling into the seductions of nationalist essentialism. Now, one of the kinds of things that affects or that enables this kind of braiding is um, the use of the integration of the engagement with small everyday technologies, right? Non-spectacular mm-hmm. technologies, you call them. And the book mm-hmm. focuses on a number of small, what you call, and this is a quote from the book, small, non-spectacular and everyday technologies as motors or catalysts of change. And we'll talk about those um, as we get to uh, through um, some of the chapters in our conversation today. But another mm-hmm. Um, kind of thing that's produced aside from the braiding by these technologies is a series of what you call physiograms. So this is Mm -hmm. another key aspect of the analysis. And in addition to pointing out um, an important or uh, a number of important small everyday technologies in each chapter, you also point out particular physiograms that emerge in the context of each chapter. Um, Now, you're very explicit in saying that this notion draws on John Tresh's notion of cosmograms, and and, uh, listeners of the channel will perhaps recall that um, uh, conversation with him about his book um, some time ago, Um, but this is actually doing work that's quite different. And so could you, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, talk about this notion of physiograms and the work that it's doing for you here? 
Uh, well, the physiograms, I think, again, come out of partly also the kind of interdisciplinarity in practice that you mentioned that I try to engage in in the book. Um, and uh, I'm drawing a lot, as you would have seen, on anthropological literature. Um, and, uh, for instance, I'm, I'm really... Uh, uh, I, I draw, and I, I mentioned this in the book as well, I draw, for instance, also on Steve Fireman's work and what he calls kind of folk anatomy and kind of trying to reconstruct. And this is something, of course, anthropologists do. They construct uh, or they reconstruct knowledges that are all not written down often. And again, as somebody who's been interested in uh, subalternity, I've struggled with this, how to reconstruct knowledges that aren't explicitly written down. Uh, the one thing where I kind of uh, am less comfortable with that anthropological literature is because of the generalization at the level of culture. And that, again, because of this, like the boogeyman of nationalism, the, the, of whom I'm really scared and want to have nothing to do with, I do not want to generalize at the level of culture as a whole. And so I was, neither do I want to uh, drown in individual case studies because I do aspire to... Uh, being able to say something more than here's this one particular healer I studied, um, like, you know, a lot of ethnographies. I don't mean like, I think, I think actually your book is a great example of how you can use one particular I person. Was going. Take a <laughs> it's like, he's going to hear himself say that, and he's going to be like, but not your book. <laughs> it's totally cool. It's fine. Go on. Go on. No, I, I was thinking more of, you know, there are books I love. Like, for instance, there's a book uh, by Joyce Flukiger called Inamma's Healing Room. I love that book uh, because, again, it's an ethnographic work devoted to a single, very subaltern healer in Hyderabad. Um, and she tries to make some general cases, uh, points from that. And so I was looking for something that would allow me to do that historically, that would not be about the study of a single person, but would not necessarily generalize at the level of culture. So I was in search for some kind of middle level generality. And that's where, uh, and conversations with John has been incredibly, incredibly productive for me. I mean, I can't uh, acknowledge him enough. Uh, he Having him as a colleague is wonderful. And it kind of is, is such a generous and in, uh, imaginative historian that I always find engaging with him and his ideas extremely productive. So he had this idea of materialized cosmologies, which were kind of middle level generalizations about the cosmos, which weren't shared by everybody, but neither were they reducible to a single individual. They were sort of things that were incomplete, but you could see them in the work of multiple individuals at a given moment. And I took that on and I uh, came up with physiograms, which I think of as kind of materialized physiologies or body images. And this again goes back also to... Uh, Charles Rosenberg's uh, therapeutic change argument, where he thinks that what really allows you to map therapeutic change in all its diversity uh, is the change in the way the body is understood. So what he calls the body metaphor. Um, and again, like how to come up with a more plural idea of body metaphor, where I don't say that all Bengali Ayurvedists thought this, uh, but I can say that there were these kind of broadly shared images of the body, which you can see materialized in practice and writings of multiple um, practicing Ayurvedists in this period. So that's, that's how I kind of get to physiograms, and that's what I'm trying to do with it. And one of the things that's really interesting about the book um, from the perspective of practice and historiography is the way that you're accessing these physiograms through really a variety of kinds of writings. And so one of the things that's really striking, um, and this comes up, I think, uh, in chapter one for the first time, is that you're also using fiction um, as an important yeah. source to get at some of this. There's one um, novel, or there's one of work of fiction in particular called um, Arogyo Nikitan, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that comes up um, at the very beginning and that you constantly come back to. Um, is that? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit, uh, just very briefly, about the importance of fiction to the work that you're doing in the book and of that novel in particular to what's happening here? Um, 
Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I could go on forever on fiction <laughs> and history because I, that's like really something I love. Yeah. Uh, but this particular novel is a very interesting one. It's uh, it's kind of, it's also been weighed into a movie. It was a very critically acclaimed novel when it came out in the 1950s, got a big literary award in India. Uh, but what I'd never realized, and it kind of... Um, has a lot. It tells the story of three generations of Ayurvedic physicians in a small little village in Western Bengal and how things, how their world and how their practice changes over this period. And it uh, it's animated through um, clash between a very idealistic modern um, doctor who has been right after independence sent out. Uh, uh, is a biomedically trained doctor sent out by the government uh, and absolutely has no time for traditional medicine, quote unquote, uh, and thinks Ayurveda is a bunch of bunkum and uh, and this clash and how it unfolds and the gradual mutual uh, recognizability that emerges between him and the aging skin of this uh, dynasty of uh, Ayurvedic physicians. It's a fascinating story, but what I didn't know and discovered during my field work in my PhD years was that uh, when this author, who's a very well-known literary uh, author, when he was writing this book, he was also uh, into politics and he was a member of uh, the local legislative assembly uh, elected in the very first elections after Indian independence. Uh, and his best friend in the uh, in the political uh, party was uh, this guy who was, again, a very eminent Ayurvedist and a uh, uh, skewn of a long and very respected Ayurvedic dynasty. And so when he was writing this novel, he actually discussed drafts with this guy. So its status as fiction, it has always been seen as a fiction, but the novel is, I think, somewhere in between uh, novel per se as a complete work of fiction and a memoir of his friend and his take on the world. So that novel I find is actually, it's it's not even completely fiction in that sense. It's it's a different kind of genre, which has only been understood as a novel, but it, it has these wonderful insights, which I think work really well to bring out some of the complexity of the stories that I'm trying to tell. I think it works super well in your narrative. And we won't talk about this now, but at some point, at some conference in the future, um, I think you have a whole book on science, medicine, and fiction that's ruining in you. And so I'm going to try to convince you to write that book, but not right now. <laughs> so you talked, okay, so there's a chapter of the book before we get into these case studies that is really important, um, but we won't have time to talk about in detail here. Um, this is chapter one, and this is a chapter that offers a kind of what the book calls historico-sociological map of the people who engaged with the process of modernizing Ayurveda. Now, this is really important. Um, this is why I want to mention this in part because it's taking on and complicating and kind of opening up some major um, sociological and historical categories um, for the purpose of what's to come. And those include looking at the significance of class and middle classness in particular, refocusing attention from caste to localized units called jatis, and really situating us within um, kind of Bengal, within the dominance of a, a kind of urban culture there of Calcutta, um, and bringing out also the importance of Sanskrit and English to some of what's happening here. And so it's, it does really important work, and I want to just flag it um, for listeners uh, because it's it's an important bedrock for what's to come. But I want to get <laughs> to the clockwork body um, so we can come back to elements of that whenever you want, Prajeep. But, um, but sure. we're, we're going to move for now to Chapter 2. Now, Chapter 2 looks at the physiogram of the clockwork body. And the everyday yeah. technology that facilitates this is the pocket watch. Um, now, there's a lot that we can talk about here, um, but just as a kind of example of how these everyday technologies um, interfinger with and produce or interfigure with and produce these physiograms, let's talk a little bit about the relationship between the pocket watch and this clockwork body. Um, just very briefly, you talk here about the importance of the pulse. Uh, as a site mm -hmm. of intense boundary marking and boundary mm -hmm. making. And one of the things that's happening here is you're showing us through this kind of history of the use and practices 
around the pocket watch, the ways that the pulse as a sort of marker of boundaries um, was marking different ways, for example, of measuring time, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And the existence of alternate temporal cultures. So Mm -hmm. for you, I think that I'm just going to hit this uh, ball back to you. What for you is most fascinating about the kind of work that's happening here um, using the pocket watch to produce this physiogram of the clockwork body and the, the kinds of pluralities that this lets us see that we might not otherwise see? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, of course, if, I mean, as you know, Pulse is has such an iconic importance um, uh, for so many uh, so-called, quote-unquote, traditional medicines. Um, and it's so easy to also write Pulse into a very kind of Whiggish teleological history uh, where, oh, everybody was fumbling around the same basic thing. And then we got to, uh, and then it sort of straight line from there into uh, other things. Uh, Whereas we know, of course, from, and there's continues to be fascinating work. I mean, recently I've been fascinated by uh, Tatiana Chudakova, I think is the name, Uh, her work, for instance, on on trying to mechanize pulse in the Soviet Union. Her work is awesome. It's really awesome, yeah, and and so I think pulse is interesting for me because it is so easy to miss the pluralities in it and to see it as just one common universal thing, and that was somehow like that reinforces various Whiggish narratives. Uh, whereas once you start looking at it, it opens up this enormous plurality that's uh, kind of there. Um, so widely dispersed, and it's also this this iconic diagnostic technique, which is uh, which again, I mean, it's not there. Like I mentioned in the chapter, it's not there in classical Ayurvedic texts. It's not there in Charaka Samhita. It's not there in Shushruta Samhita. It's not there in Bhagavata, the three uh, canonical texts. It comes up kind of out of the blue in around the 13th, 14th century, uh, and then uh, continues to grow in importance. But it gets radically transformed in the 19th century once you have the uh, pocket watch. And the pocket watch, what I'm trying to argue, and this goes back to that previous chapter that we skipped over, the reason somebody wants to have a pocket watch is not actually medical, in my view, originally, but it's because you're kind of like Victorian middle classes across the world. You kind of define your class identity as a middle class person by consuming things like pocket watches. If you're a respectable gentleman, you have a pocket watch on a gold chain in your pocket. And so a lot of these elite Ayurvedists are doing that, I feel. And then at some point, once they have it, they're producing all this. And I tried to show this in the chapter that they're producing initially this uh, new numeralized data about the pulse instead of the kind of uh, qualitative data, which was more about, oh, this pulse is uh, like the gait of a marsh snipe or like the gait of a snake or or a frog. Instead of that, you're now getting like numeralized uh, counts of pulses, mm-hmm. but they don't quite know how that fits into their in- imagination of the body. So then once the data is produced, you need to make sense of that data. And that's where the braiding happens by drawing on very specific strands of electromagnetism by drawing on very specific strands within the Ayurvedic heritage. Uh, It kind of braids them together and creates this, what I'm calling the clockwork body, where uh, the body is increasingly imagined. And this is, again, a familiar theme for um, Western historians of science that... uh, the body being imagined as a clock, as a as mm-hmm. a kind of clockwork. But I think the Ayurvedists taking it on are making it do slightly different things. Uh, it's also they can never, partly because they're also working through uh, ca- internalized Orientalist categories of the mm-hmm. spiritual East and stuff. And that's getting, so mechanism, and again this, and you can hear echoes perhaps of John's work here once more, uh, that like mechanism and vitalism are not two poles, but kind of cross-fertilize and braid into one another in this clockwork body. That's right. And one of the really interesting um, kinds of implications or a number of uh, the kinds of implications that come from this are not just about, and you show us this, right, um, sort of um, uh, 
engaging data, um, understanding um, how to practice, you know, with pulses of various sorts. Um, and I use that term very loosely, but also, and this is the point that I wanted to get to, you're showing here, among other things, that the pocket watch um, is also enabling or facilitating a shift in bedside manners, a shift in the kind of affective responses happening in the patient-physician patient relationship, and it also enhances the authority of the physician. So there's a lot of kinds of work that these technologies are doing that may not be obvious um, that the chapters really bring out, and I think this is a beautiful example of that. Now, we move from here to several more physiograms. We won't have a chance to talk about each one, um, but the next one I think we should at least touch on, and this is um, chapter three, which explores the physiogram of what you call the Snyubic man. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a physiogram that's produced through the everyday technology of the thermometer. And there's so much we could talk about here, right? I mean, the chapter talks about notions of body heat, relationships between body heat and fever, um, kind of opening up what we think we're talking about when we talk about fever. It talks about the significance of letters um, as sources for understanding conversations about illness. There's lots and lots of stuff happening here. Um, but one of the really interesting things is your discussion of these things, snayus. Am I pronouncing? Mm -hmm. I'm, I pronounce everything wrong, but like I'm just no, going to give that a You're shot. You're pronouncing okay. everything Snyus. perfectly. Yay. Um, <laughs> so, so you show us um, the existence of these things, snayus, which may look like they are mapping onto a nervous system, but they're importantly different when they're mapped onto a body from what's mm -hmm. happening in um, you know, kind of a more conventional nervous system diagram. Um, and that difference is becomes actually really important. So what mm -hmm. is Snyubic Man and how does that come out of, um, or what's for you perhaps most interesting about the way that comes out of engagement with a thermometer? Uh, well, I think the Snyubic man, the kind of um, what's what's really ex uh, that's the that's the one physiogram for which I actually have an illustration. I think which is great <laughs> because it helps me helps me anchor my thoughts in an actual image. So this image is on uh, page uh, one fifty three, <laughs> and you can you can see the image. And what's really exciting about that image for me is that this is this weird book where you have. Uh, the page actually split in half and uh, there's an Ayurvedic discussion of uh, various uh, diagnostic technologies going on on the top half and the bottom half, which is supposed to be a footnote, is almost as, um, in terms of space, almost as large as the uh, upper half. And it's telling you a completely parallel story about how the uses of thermometers and uses of uh, uh, other kinds of tests, including, say, urine tests and stuff are going on. Um, but the image that you will see on 153 is uh, two things I would like to say about it. One is that if you picked up that image and saw it, you'd see that there's no brain. Mm -hmm. The the image gets, uh, and this is particularly interesting for me because I think there is as as a number of people uh, have uh, argued recently that the modern personhood from the late 19th century, increasingly through neurology and other things, gets reduced to brainhood. And it becomes like we think of ourselves as our little brains. And so nowadays people want to like freeze their brains when they die so that if they ever come back. But they, they don't need the rest of the body. They just need the brain. So um, it's quite interesting that this conversation on the Ayurvedic side, which is drawing on these very same uh, currents of or a lot of the overlapping currents about uh, nerves and nervous systems does away with the brain altogether. And so it becomes a kind of hydraulic system where things flow evenly. So the uh, head space in that image is just like a bunch of nerves again. So it's, it's a properly circulatory image. Um, and I think this is radically transforming what the doshas, which are usually translated as humors, but I don't want to translate them as humors, as I say in the uh, book, but vayu, pitta, kapha, the three kind of 
terror humors, if you will, uh, uh, that are central to Ayurvedic pathogenesis, they're not imagined as fluids that flow around the three uh, similar fluids. They're imagined they're subdivided into five parts each. Each part is thought to be in a particular place in the body. Uh, Disease happens not just by imbalance as like 10 million popular Ayurvedic books tell you, but it's uh, but it happens because uh, of the uh, particular subhumor being displaced from the place. So it's uh, as much about misplacement. So this whole idea of a uniform body space where things just flow around and need to be in balance is a very hydraulic uh, metaphor which homogenizes the internal space of the body. And all of that happens through... Uh, this idea of heat initially, because once they start getting uh, an idea about body heat as an index of fever, and fever is, of course, one of the master pathogenic categories or or pathological categories, I should say. Uh, It is the the disease, as it were. Um, And once you kind of tag it on to heat, heat becomes something quantifiable, and you're trying to make sense of heat by drawing on all these conversations about electromagnetism. And that's where... I think we start constructing this uniform, homogenized body space that is going to become central to modern Ayurveda. Excellent. Thank you so much. And so there's so much going on in that chapter. There are also a number of other chapters following this um, that I'll just kind of briefly mention that are doing functionally similar kinds of work insofar as they are presenting one or more key everyday technologies that are generating new materializations of kind of body concepts. So chapter four looks at vision and seeing, and it presents um, a story about the way that the microscope facilitated the emergence of the what you call the chiaroscuric man, the physiogram. Mm-hmm. This is the chapter um, that invokes color in the way that I mentioned um, a little bit earlier in our conversation. And it looks at the braiding of different kinds of seeing, right, that are happening mm-hmm. through an engagement with microscope technology um, and pays some really interesting attention to Ayurvedic germ theory, Um, cell theory, and the ways that looking at worms, for example, um, kind of generated ways of thinking about germ theory. Chapter five looks at um, what you call the endocrinochakric machine. So um, uh, you look here at the technology of organotherapy or injecting organ extracts, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the kind of relationship between that and the modern incorporation of chakras into Ayurvedic writing. Um, There's also a really interesting, just for listeners, I'll mention this, a really interesting discussion of the significance of radio technology um, to what's happening Mm -hmm. in this chapter. So there's a lot going on here that we won't have time to go into in detail, um, but that's not to say it's not fascinating and important. It's entirely about time. But this brings us to the... Um, chapter six, which is actually doing a really interesting kind of work that's importantly different from these chapters that we've either talked about in detail um, or just kind of very briefly touched on. This is because while chapter six looks at the importance of a technology, chapter six is looking at the body of the physician as a form of technology. And this is a chapter that considers how, um, and this is in the words of the book, the physician's body as technology was remade in the course of the modernization of Ayurveda. Now you say here, um, uh, kind of early on in this chapter, that there are a couple of related, um, but not necessarily, uh, well, there are at least a couple of related things that are happening with the body of the physician that are important here. At the same time, the body of the physician is itself denied the power of diagnostic reasoning, but it becomes a crucial medium through which sensory data is collected. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and there's a lot more happening here that we'll talk about. But just to kind of get us started a little bit um, in terms of talking about this chapter, can you talk about that part of it? Like what's happening in terms of this simultaneous or maybe roughly simultaneous or coterminous um, both um, uh, transformation of the physician's body so that it becomes both crucial and also um, in, in unreliable diagnostically? 
Well, I think before that, if I could just add a word. Um, sure. So this was, this chapter has an interesting uh, history of its own. It wasn't part of the original manuscript I'd submitted, um, and I got, I got two extremely generous uh, referee reports back from the University of Chicago, uh, uh, and they were. I was over the moon. The referees, both referees, didn't want a single thing changed. They were very happy with it and it was a very very good exercise uh, but one referee mentioned that uh, you know you you're talking about all these uh, uh, everyday technologies and of course the body of the healer is also a technology <laughs> and i was at that point you know the penny just dropped it was yes that is it and that's what i've been thinking about all the while and why didn't i put it in so i, I went back to my editor karen darling and said like can i add another chapter and she's like no no it's gone through the referee process we can't do it uh, it's going to delay everything a lot and i'm like but I insisted that once the bug was in my head, I had to write it. And I'm like, I'm going to give it to you in two days. She said, two but we'll days. still have to get it. Yeah. So she said, we'll still have to referee it. Uh, and I'm like, okay, but let me, I still want it because I think it's absolutely crucial now that I've thought about it. And and it was actually, you know, it was a chapter literally written in about eight or nine hours. Oh my God. From start to finish. And it was because it was all there, but I needed that, uh, very generous referee, whoever that is out there in the world, thank you very much to to make me see it. And his or her comment kind of uh, made me see that it was there. And so uh, it it was written in this eight hour mad rush over like three cups of coffee or something. <laughs> and, uh, and so I just wanted to throw it in there as a kind of interesting side detail to the writing of the book. Okay. Uh, but to get back to your question about what is uh, going on in terms of uh, the body of the, uh, the the body of the physician, I, I also find these um, music metaphors which are used uh, to train again uh, in the pulse texts throughout the 13th century. That's one of the uh, areas where the body of the physician is most. Uh, important because you have to tune your body uh, as a physician to the body of the patient. And it's actually the the image is used as one of tuning. Like you, you're, it's always different musical instruments that are invoked. And that, it's also interesting how that changes from a sitar to a violin uh, through the coming of modernity. Uh, what you, uh, the, the practice of uh, of bodily uh, cultivation uh, as a healer. Uh, and at, at the point when it shifts, I think in the, around the turn of the 20th century, when it shifts, that's when this shift happens from uh, the body being, uh, the body of the healer being a diagnostic technology to it being a technology useful in the making of medicines with a small m. So its its function completely changes because diagnostically it has been displaced now. So diagnostically, pulse is read by, with a uh, with a pocket watch. You are using a thermometer. You're using probably also urine tests and such like. And so um, the importance of the physician's body as a diagnostic tool declines. But where it comes up is in making the medicine. So there's, there are these uh, constant protestations that the physician uh, personally selects the herbs, that they uh, manufacture the herbs in a way that is ritually pure, that the physician's body is ritually pure when he, he's, uh, so to speak, cooking the medicines. Um, and so this, this flip from uh, the physician's body being functionally important to diagnosis to it being functionally uh, important to the production of medicines. That is, I think, the flip that I'm trying to talk about. Right. And you do talk here about um, the importance of the way the physician's body is, or the physician um, itself is reconfigured as a gem collector, right? And here... Yep. Also, these medicine bottles come back in. So I need to just kind of mention this um, because as you've mentioned, um, the importance of medicines or, or pharmacy um, perhaps comes in um, really importantly in this chapter. You talk about the way that practice becomes increasingly equated with knowledge and competence in pharmacy. Um, and those uh, pharmaceutical elements are specifically liquid. Um, and so the chapter mm -hmm. pays 
um, really, I think, interesting attention to the importance of material culture insofar that it's looking at the connection between the rise and importance of a particular kind of liquid um, medicines, passions, extracts, or astringents, Um, And the relationship between that and the fact that medicine bottles had become iconic signs of medical modernity. Um, And so there's Mm -hmm. a really interesting um, focus on medicine bottles, on material culture, on liquids and liquidity, and on pharmacy here (laughs) in Chapter 6 for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it. Now, this brings us, Prajeep, to the conclusion, which does much more than merely summing up um, what's happening prior to the conclusion in the book. It does that work as well, briefly, in the first part. But in the second part, the conclusion offers us an account of what did not make it into modern Ayurveda, um, what you call the styles of thinking about the body that became impossible as a result of the kinds of modernizing processes that the book recounts. Now, there Mm -hmm. are a number of interrelated um, examples that you talk about here um, in this part of the book, but I'll ask you perhaps to talk about one of them um, that comes up, and feel free to bring in others if you'd like. You talk about the idea of the hyperphysical body um, Mm -hmm. as one of these um, elements that did not make it into modern Ayurveda. Can you perhaps use this as an example to illustrate um, kind of what you're talking about here in the conclusion and talk about why this is so important. Sure. And this is this is also this is also going to give me a chance to acknowledge my debt to two other authors, anthropologists from from whom I've learned and borrowed a lot. Uh, uh, one is uh, Jean Langford, uh, whose work Fluent Bodies uh, was enormously liberating at grad school when I first encountered it. I mean, the imaginativeness and the kind of uh, the way she actually looked at instead of the Indological work and the classical studies work, which was interesting in its own way, but uh, uh, didn't see some of the like creativity in the modern um, uh, modern versions of Ayurveda. Uh, so Jean's book did that. Uh, uh, however, the one thing I was kind of uncomfortable with again was this kind of. Uh, clear polarization between uh, what she called a fluent body of Ayurveda and a docile body of um, biomedicine. And I thought, well, the biomedical body is not singular and neither is the Ayurvedic body. And the modernization process actually, I think, makes the body somewhat, the Ayurvedic body more compatible with, uh, with biomedicine. You see that increasingly now with so much of... Um, overlap with, I don't want to call it biomedicalization in a kind of clear zero-sum way, but uh, there is an increasing tendency within mainstream Ayurveda to use more and more uh, biomedical technologies, biomedical uh, concepts, uh, and there's a lot of cross-fertilization happening. So the bodies are not as incompatible. However, having said that, I also recognized from Jean's work that there is something that is getting lost, that is that was quite incompatible with Ayurveda. I just didn't think that Ayurveda in its modern form remains that incompatible. So what I wanted to do in this chapter is look at, okay, Ayurveda produces modern Ayurveda, quote unquote, produces this new body image, which is more compatible with uh, the biomedical body, but not exactly similar either. Uh, But there is something that is lost, something that is even more radically different that cannot be accommodated. And part of that, I think central to that is this idea of the hyperphysical body. The hyperphysical body uh, is a body that can, uh, that is firstly not organized around a uh, rationalized internal space. So you can have, for instance, these chakras where you keep digging deeper and deeper into chakras. Uh, what Ayurvedists since the 1920s have tried to do, even now try to do, is say the chakras are just metaphors for synapses or something else, some other organic uh, structure. But if you actually read them, you dig deeper into the chakras and at some point you're no longer within the body, but you're in this cosmic space where gods inhabit, uh, gods and the entire cosmos kind of inhabits within that single chakra. So it's it's not a space that's amenable to uh, spatial rationalization. And um, 
it in trying to think of this, I was really inspired by Joe Joe Alter's work, whom I, again, whose work I find enormously educative um, and inspiring. Uh, Joe had this argument about. Uh, a very different notion of health in certain South Asian healing traditions, where health is not the return from some kind of uh, dysfunctionality back to functionality or from abnormality back into some version of normality. But health is something that is a, that doesn't have an end. You can continue to cultivate it forever. And the end point is humans eventually become superhuman. So you acquire these siddhis and you become uh, superhumans and you become immortal, you become invisible, you become capable of mind control and flight and all these superhuman possibilities. So health is seen not as a mere return to the normal, but a kind of uh, uh, an infinite avenue for uh, transcendence. And uh, I think the hyperphysical body is at the base of that, where its cultivation is not about just uh, extending biological life. So it's not biopolitical in that sense. Uh, it is biomoral, but it is also biotranscendental in a sense that it, 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 it is about a body that is not rationalizable, that is not tied to just simple biological life and longevity, but that is about transcendence, about the possibilities of ordinary human beings becoming superhumans. Project, thank you so much. Um, so if we had more time, um, I'd also want to be hearing lots more about all of the other things that you talk about in this chapter, but I'll just highlight um, very briefly for listeners who are particularly interested in the way that the book engages the sensory world, right? We talked a little bit about color and light, um, heat. Um, there's a really interesting discussion here in this conclusion on oral, A-U-R-A-L therapies, um, so sound and the way that sound um, is actually potentially part of this story. So check out the conclusion if you are interested in sound studies, um, listeners, and you'll find a lot of good stuff there. So Prajit, there's obviously right a ton of things that we haven't had a chance to talk about. It's an extraordinarily rich book. Um, given that, though, is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention that didn't come up in the course of our conversation, um, perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? Uh, well, um, I guess I guess we've covered most of the things that I would really want to talk about. Uh, I want to reiterate once more my commitment to this idea of braiding as a way of getting out of a kind of encounter framework where there's the West and the non-West and they somehow collide and... Uh, um, even if there are friendly exchanges that it's between two homogenous holes. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to get away from that and hopefully uh, that will find some uh, great attraction. And on that uh, score, I also think that the book, uh, I want to make a bid that the book is of interest to historians of science uh, more generally and not just to historians of medicine, because I think... Um, Ayurvedists in the period that I'm studying drew, thought of it as a science and not just medicine and drew upon a whole palette of other sciences, including the physical sciences, the chemical sciences. The, the conversations that I document in the book are of between them and a whole range of European sciences uh, that cannot just be reduced to the medical. So I would. So the one thing I would like to also, along with braiding, emphasize is that this book I hope will be of interest to even those historians of science who are not interested in the history of medicine per se. Excellent. Now, now that the book is out, um, aside from the book that I'm going to convince you eventually to write about fiction and history of science and medicine, and we'll, we'll get there. Um, and that should be easy, right? I mean, if you can write a chapter in like eight hours, that's like, right, like a weekend's work or something. But um, aside from that, what's next for you? What are you currently working on and inspired by? So one of the, uh, so I am uh, actually uh, getting quite deep into my next project at this point. And there's, there's uh, what I'm interested in is it's still not fully articulated, though, uh, in thinking about the, the way we think of group inheritance. Uh, 
And let me, uh, this is, this sounds even worse than it does in my head now that I say it. <laughs> but, but basically what is of interest to me is a longer history of genetics in India, uh, which uh, has become quite a big uh, field, acquiring a lot of government funding. Uh, and that has a, that's not recent, that goes back almost to the, not almost, it does actually go back to the very beginnings of classical genetics. Um, and, uh and that has kind of increasingly biologized our idea of inheritance in a way. But I want to play that off, uh, that story of uh, the history of genetics off with other parallel stories, such as there was a thriving uh, field of parapsychological research that was looking into reincarnations uh, that until recently was not really quack science, but considered uh, good science until the end of the Cold War. Uh, there were other... Uh, there was another discipline called craftology that I'm really interested in, where uh, people were trying to think of group inheritance through the study of folk arts. Um, and I want to, so I want to think of how do we think of our, when we think of who our ancestors are, and this is a this is a question that is in many ways, even if not always explicitly owned up to, I think is a very important question in South Asia. Uh, who what our past was, who our ancestors were. Uh, and we've increasingly zeroed in on a kind of genetic way of answering that question and left out all the other sort of parapsychological, craftological ways of answering that question. And that's what I'm playing around with. So inheritance as a problem. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, best of luck with that project, Prajit. And that's also um, going to make a fabulous book. So thank you for taking time away from that to talk with me about this book. Best of luck. Um, and it's really been a pleasure. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, Carla. Um, I should I should also mention maybe uh, just one last uh -huh. thing that if if anybody looks at the book, I mean even if you don't read it, look at the book. I'm very proud of the cover. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, we had uh, my wife designed it, so which ah. is why I really really uh, and uh, we sent a whole bunch of different designs. Uh, of which only this one was her, uh, designed by her to the press, and they. Uh, without knowing that it was by my wife, chose to go with this. So I'm really proud of it. So even if I'm, I'm not sure if I'm proud of the book, but I'm proud of the cover. Okay. So, <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.